Amen. Please be seated and take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, heir to the covenant promises, heir to the promised land of Canaan, is, because of his deceitful trickery of his brother Esau, in exile from the very land that he is supposed to inherit. And in the wake of his deception, Esau was determined to kill Jacob for revenge. And at the urging of his mother, Jacob flees Canaan to Padanaram. And the plan was uh, to for, just to go there for a short time, perhaps for a few weeks. And then when Esau cooled off, mom would send for Jacob to come home. That was 20 years ago. Jacob's still not home. Because it was in the plan of God, in his love and wisdom, to discipline Jacob, to shave off the rough edges of his heart. And God's tool of discipline was Laban, probably the only man on the planet who was a better trickster than Jacob. And through Laban's trickery, Jacob found himself marrying two of Laban's daughters instead of one. And in the wake of that, all of the scheming and all the machinations and all the sibling rivalry that Jacob gladly participated in in his past, all those things now are coming back around to haunt him in his own household as the friction between his two wives causes all kinds of grief and and discord in the family as they use him and their children as pawns in their battle for supremacy. What's more... Jacob was entangled into serving Laban, who had been, who's been squeezing Jacob for everything that he can get out of him. And as Jacob managed Laban's flocks, God was richly blessing Laban's business on account of Jacob. But while Laban gets richer, Jacob remains as penniless as he did when he first arrived in Canaan, or from Canaan, as a refugee. Uh, the arrangement was little better than slave labor. And, and Jacob is learning how it feels to be the one who is exploited and taken advantage of. He is getting a taste of his own medicine. Well, in the last part of chapter 30, we looked at this last week, a desire begins to stir up in Jacob's heart as he longs to return to Canaan. And Laban, desperate to hang on to his moneymaker, uh, desperate to hang on to Jacob's services, strikes another deal with him. Jacob agrees to stay, and he agrees to keep managing Laban's flock under the condition that the rarer, odd-looking, multicolored sheep would belong to him. He'd get all of those, and all the normal-looking sheep would be Laban's. Laban naturally thinks this is a great deal. This is a chance to further rip off his nephew. And what's more, Laban begins the deal by cheating as he secretly removes those odd-looking sheep from the flock, and he gives them to his sons who are three days away. And so Jacob starts this arrangement with absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, Jacob puts his own plan into gear, which combined baseless, superstitious folk magic with selective breeding. And lo and behold, Jacob's scheme appears to work. And there's, there's a remarkable proliferation suddenly of all of these odd-colored sheep, and they're going to Jacob. And in addition, Jacob's flocks are getting stronger, and Laban's animals are becoming weaker. And so chapter 30 ends with verse 43 saying, Thus Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. 
Now, with that said, we're going to discover that as time goes on, Laban gets increasingly harsher in his dealings with Jacob, making life utterly miserable for him. And in chapter 31, things are finally going to come to a head as we approach the climax of the Jacob-Laban cycle. So let's see what happens next. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, infallible words of our great and glorious God. We are in Genesis uh, 31. We are not going to be able to do the entire chapter today. So this is going to be like a two-parter uh, for this, this chapter here. And uh, we're going to start in verse 1 and read on down through verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock and all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Laban tricked, uh, Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and rose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please help me, your weak, flawed servant this morning, to rightly preach your word. And Father, help this congregation, this flock that you have given me to shepherd this morning. I pray that you would feed them well from your word, that you would bless them and encourage them, and let them walk away from this place this morning after having fed on your word, knowing you and loving you and seeking to glorify you all the more. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Of 
Quick question to the folks back there in the sound booth. Is the clicker back there? Because I'm going to need that laser, laser pointer later <clears throat> because we're going to have a little map later on, which is always exciting. <clears throat> back there? Thank you. Yeah, just uh, bring it up here when you get a chance. Thank you. <clears throat> well, Genesis 31 stands as both a sequel and a prequel. Uh, it's a sequel in that it is building upon the story that God began with Abraham. Uh, there are parallels between Jacob's experience and things that have come before in Genesis. But chapter 31 is also a prequel pointing to things to come. Jacob's exodus from Mesopotamia is remarkably similar to the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt later on. And that would not have been lost uh, uh, on Genesis' first audience, which happened to be that exodus generation. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider uh, some of those, those parallels and, and how all of this, of course, connects to your story. Now, the first thing I want us to see in our text this morning is a Godward calling. A Godward calling. Last week, we considered Jacob's longing to return to Canaan. There was this increased awareness in Jacob that Padan Aram was not his true home, that the fullness of God's promises and blessings and the fulfillment of Jacob's mission to become a great nation and bless the world, that can only happen in the land of promise. And yet, after 14 years in Padan Aram, Jacob found himself serving Laban for yet another six years, building up his own personal wealth. And it's easy to imagine that Jacob could have stayed in Padan Aram forever, making money, building his little empire. Jacob, on the one hand, longed for Canaan, but on the other hand, he needs a, a little extra incentive to actually pick up and leave. And that's exactly what he's going to get. Look at verse 1 with me. Text says, now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that, our, that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. <clears throat> now, it's interesting that the escalation of tensions between Laban and Jacob are, are, are heightening with the grumblings of the sons of Laban. They accuse Jacob of stealing their father's wealth, which is really ironic, because who's the thief? Laban is the thief, who originally, in secret, took Jacob's sheep and gave them to his sons, and his sons are complicit in the theft. Now, we already know that Laban is a bad guy, but in this chapter, the, the full nature of Laban's depravity is going to be exposed in all of its ugliness. Because as long as Laban was getting what he wanted from Jacob, namely wealth, then all is well and good. Laban is, is able to put on some sort of fake front and not be that bad of a guy. So for example, in chapter 29, when he's greeting Jacob and he's hugging and kissing him, oh, Jacob, you're my own flesh and blood. Or in chapter 30, he's buttering up Jacob and he's acting all humble and he's flattering him as he tries to, to get Jacob to stay longer. But now, all pretense is gone. And it says in verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's saying Laban's face was not with Jacob. As Laban's bitterness and jealousy consumes him, things take a dark and dangerous turn. Later in this chapter, there are not so subtle hints that Laban is quite capable of violence. 
And Laban is not hiding his true feelings anymore. It says that Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor. So this hostility now, it's out in the open. It's, it's not under the rug or it, there's, there's no fake pretense or, or anything like that. It's just all out there. Now, what is noteworthy is that even though Jacob is a flesh and blood relative of Laban and his sons, there is now a clear division between them. They may share blood, but they are not family. They are not of the same people. There is a separation that has happened that blood ties cannot bridge, and Jacob's experience is a microcosm of a larger biblical principle, namely that God's people are called out of the world to bless the world, but at the same time, that causing is going to cause tension and division with the world. Jacob's grandfather Abraham was called out of of a life in Mesopotamia, but to fulfill that calling, he had to abandon his old gods, his old ways, even his people, as he goes to settle in the promised land for the sake of God's mission to bless the world. So likewise, Jacob now is called out of Mesopotamia by God to do the same thing. But the calling brings painful division. Likewise, later on, Jacob's descendants... The children of Israel were called out of Egypt, again, for the, for the purpose of blessing the nations. And yet the calling brought conflict and severe persecution. Now, if you're a Christian, you need to know that this pattern for God's people continues today. You are part of God's new covenant people, the church. And that word church in the Greek is the word ekklesia. It means the called out ones. You have been called out of this world system that lives in hatred and opposition to God, and and this world is not your true home. And those still in the world are not your true people. You see, before you were a Christian, you could enjoy peace with the world, but when you threw your lot in with Jesus, you suddenly represented something and someone that completely undermines and threatens the world. Therefore, don't expect to be accepted by the world. Sometimes Christians think, well, if we could just be like Jesus and love people as Jesus loved them and serve people as Jesus served, then the world would be attracted to us. Then the world would accept us. Simply isn't true. It wasn't true with Jesus. If anyone is going to be attractive and Christ-like, it's Jesus. No one was more loving than Jesus. No one served people better than Jesus. And while there were some that God did draw to Christ and save, the world at large despised Jesus. The crowds were fine with Jesus as long as he healed their diseases and fed their stomachs with miraculous bread. But the moment he stopped giving the people what they wanted, The moment he began to call people to remove everything else from the center of their lives and put him at the center, then Jesus was not useful to them, and they did not regard Jesus with favor as they did before. Why? Because Jesus is the light, and people love the darkness rather than the light, John writes in John chapter 3. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Really doesn't get any more complicated than that. Sinful man wants to be his own God and wants to remain in his sin because he loves it. Jesus exposes it, threatens the sin that they love, and so they hated the one who shined the light, exposing their corruption, and they murdered him for it. So in truth, the more that you are like Jesus 
the more that you stand out like a beacon and the more at odds you will be with the world who loves darkness. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. And then Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And blood ties, blood ties are not strong enough to hold us together with the world. Again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You will lose friends by becoming a Christian. Some of you probably have experienced that. You may even lose close ties with family. Some of you have experienced that. Jacob, in Genesis 31, because of his association with God, and because of his calling, is experiencing that unraveling of relationships. The more Jacob experiences the favor and blessing of God, the more bitter and hostile Laban becomes. Laban is not interested in the blessor. Laban has only been interested in the blessing. And as soon as God is not giving Laban what he wants, Laban has no more use for God and no more use for God's servant. And do not be surprised, Harbin's Church, when the world treats you exactly the same way. On the other hand, the good news is is that any who belong to God, who lose their family because of God, actually gain a bigger and greater family. Somebody once approached Jesus and told him, Jesus... Your mother and brothers are outside, and they want to see you. And Jesus replied, Matthew chapter 12, Who is my mother, and who is my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this does not mean that Jesus didn't care about his blood relatives. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't. Ultimately, though, it is the spiritual family of God that will enjoy the deepest bonds and kinship. So if you're a Christian and you have unbelieving blood relatives, you are actually more related to other Christians in this room than you are to them. That's why from the very beginning, uh, very beginning of the church, believers have called one another brother and sister. That's one of those, uh, those terms that sometimes in, in church life we just take for granted. We don't even think about it anymore. That's just churchy language, brother, sister. No, actually it comes from this idea that we are actually are really brothers and sisters. That we are, really are deeply connected to one another because the ties of the Holy Spirit are thicker than blood. Now, this relational tension that Jacob is experiencing is nothing less than the grace of God in his life preparing him for his exodus. John Calvin writes that if Laban had treated Jacob kindly, his mind would have been lulled to sleep. It was far more useful to Jacob to have his father-in-law and his sons opposed because their favor might have deprived him of the blessing of God, unquote. In other words, God is not allowing Jacob to get too comfortable in building his little empire of wealth and possessions and servants. Jacob now has everything he needs. And God in his mercy is allowing adversity into his life to motivate him to pick up, to leave, and to get on with the mission of God. 
Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God makes us uncomfortable and permits adversity and trouble in our lives to reorient our lives to better fulfill the calling that he has for us. In the book of Acts, Jesus had laid out his mission for the church that they would be his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but also through Judea, into Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the early church was enjoying great prosperity and success in Jerusalem, and guess what? what? They weren't going anywhere. And then persecution hit, hard, led by a rabid religious fanatic named Saul. And it was, a, on the one hand, a very difficult time of affliction for the church, but on the other hand, guess what happened? Church scattered. And as they scattered, what did they do? They spread the good news through Judea, into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. God always has good purposes and the afflictions that he permits. Sometimes he may send adversity to actually move you geographically, as, as he's doing with, with, with Jacob and, and as he did with the first century church. But I dare say even more often, he, he, he permits affliction in, in our lives uh, to reorient and focus our hearts and minds in the direction he wants them to be in. But regardless, he always uses adversity and trouble to enable you to better fulfill his mission and his purposes for you. If Jacob was totally comfortable in Padan Aram with massive wealth and the world's best father-in-law, who knows if Jacob would have, would have ever got on with his true mission to, to return home and bless the nations. And so the increased tension between Jacob and Laban surely reinforced the truth that Padan Aram is not his true home. And it surely made Jacob's heart more receptive to God's word in verse 3, where the Lord says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers. (laughs) In light of all of what Jacob's going through, he's thinking, absolutely, ready to go. It is a blessing when the people of God are not allowed to get too comfortable in the world. It is a blessing when trouble and difficulty move our hearts and move our minds ever closer towards the call that God has put on our lives to represent him in the world. So the first thing that we see here is a Godward calling, which leads to a God-centered conference, a God-centered conference. Jacob, who in the past has shown himself to be spiritually immature and weak, now demonstrates that the years of adversity and discipline that God has brought to bear in his life are now beginning to pay off. This chapter is not the peak of Jacob's spirituality, but he is turning a corner. And he is becoming a godlier man, and, and we see evidence of that in these next few verses in his leadership of his home and in the speech that he gives to his wives. In, in the past, we've seen Jacob as harsh towards his wives. We've seen him as prayerless and passive in regards to spiritual things, even permitting sin in his own home. But now, in verse 4, we're told that Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. He wants to have a private meeting with them about the situation, away from prying ears, certainly away from the ears of of Laban and his posse. Verse 5, Jacob said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You may want to underline that verse because this is going to be at the heart of Jacob's argument. Namely, Laban has not been with me, but God has been with me. that, that, That sums up everything that he's about to say here. 
Verse six, Jacob says, you know that I have served your father with all my strength. Notice Jacob keeps saying, your father, (laughs) your father. There's a a distance there. There's a a separation, a recognition again that though they are are, uh, blood kin, they are ultimately not of the same family. Verse seven, he says, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. Now, that, that may not be literally 10 times, but, but he's, the point here is that he's just saying over and over and over and over and over again, Laban has done this. Laban keeps renegotiating Jacob's contract, except that there was no negotiation. <laughs> and Laban just arbitrarily kept moving the goalpost, which Jacob describes in the, in the next few verses where he says, in essence, Laban, Laban would say, okay, the spotted sheep shall be yours. And then lo and behold, those were the kind of sheep that were born. And then when Laban saw that, Laban would say, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, not the spotted sheep. What was I thinking? No, 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 actually, the striped sheep shall be yours. But then, lo and behold, all of a sudden, the little lambs born happened to be striped. And then, of course, then Laban would say, well, wait, wait a minute. Did I, did I say that? No, no, no. Actually, what I meant was this. These sheep will be yours. But no matter what Laban tries to do, he cannot thwart God's purposes to bless Jacob. Uh, The more Laban tried to curse Jacob, the more Jacob was blessed, the more Jacob thrived, the more Jacob multiplied. Now again, this would totally resonate with Genesis' original audience. They knew exactly what this was like. When they were slaves in Egypt, Pharaoh tried to grind them into the dust But the more he afflicted the Israelites, the more that they prospered and the more that they multiplied. Look at Jacob's conclusion in verse 9. It says, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Now again, this has parallels to the Exodus. That Hebrew word for taken away can be translated as plundered. God has plundered the livestock of Laban. Does that sound familiar? That's the exact word that is used in Exodus 12, 36, when as, the, as Israel made their exodus from Egypt, text says they plundered the wealth of the Egyptians. They plundered the wealth of the Egyptians so that they might, might leave for the promised land with all of the provision they needed. Then, in verses 10 through 12, Jacob shares with his wives the dream that he had from God, where he sees all these sheep and all these goats. And God says to Jacob in verse 12, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Jacob shares this dream to confirm why he has prospered. And isn't it noteworthy that Jacob mentions nothing about his own schemes? You know, back in chapter 30. He doesn't talk about superstitious folk magic. He doesn't talk about his clever, selective reading. None of Jacob's efforts are in the spotlight here. Uh, Instead, Jacob has come to realize what really was going on in chapter 30. The real reason that he prospered. It had nothing to do with him. It was all of the Lord. And Jacob here is testifying to his wives about God's faithfulness. I have seen all that Laban is doing to you, God said. Again, that is Exodus language. When Israel was being mistreated and exploited by the Egyptians, Exodus 2, 24 and 25 says that God saw their affliction. God sees and knows the affliction of his servants. And sooner or later, he will bring justice and he will bring vindication to his people. And Jacob is testifying to his wives 
That's exactly what's going on now. After years of mistreatment, God is bringing his justice to bear on Laban. And this is the hope of all of God's people, that God sees, that God knows, and that God will bring justice. Psalmist says in Psalm 135, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. And Jacob has learned, Jacob's learned that he doesn't need to stoop to scheming and sinful tactics to bring Laban to justice. He doesn't need to try to get revenge. He doesn't need to try to strike back. And by the way, this is a huge lesson for Jacob. Don't miss this. Remember who this is. This is Jacob, the self-sufficient heel grabber, always grasping for what he thinks he needs and trying to make everything happen in his own strength. But now, now he's learned that God is faithful, that, that God will settle accounts in his own time and in his own way, and God will bring justice. Now for Jacob, it took 20 years. For Israel, it took 400 years. For Jesus, vindication did not happen until after he was unjustly murdered by his enemies. And three days later, God raised him from the dead and he triumphed over his enemies. The Bible is constantly telling you that sooner or later, all of God's people will be vindicated. All accounts will will be settled. Sometimes in this life, God will at least in part bring about a measure of justice as he's doing here with Jacob. But ultimately, God's people can rest assured that not a single evil deed done to them, done to you, not a single evil deed done to you will forever, will go forever unaccounted for. Every evil act done to you will receive justice. Every evil act is either punished in Jesus on the cross or will be punished by Jesus as he pours out his wrath on the unrepentant in hell forever. Either way, it will be dealt with. It will be accounted for. God will take vengeance. God will settle the score. And so guess what? You don't have to. And if that's true, then you can rest in the Lord and follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who the apostle Peter says when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Now, we should marvel and praise God for the change that we're seeing in Jacob. This is a different man than the one that we've known before, y'all. First time Jacob ever mentioned God was, was when he took the name of the Lord in vain in chapter 27 when he was deceiving his brother. But now, in his speech to his wives, he mentions God five times and all in a way that honors and exalts the Lord. There's a new humility here where he puts, puts God's faithfulness in the spotlight. And here he seems to honor the spirit of what John the Baptist would say later on when, when, when he said of, of, of the Lord, he, he must increase and I must decrease. And he wants to show his wives that, yes, on the one hand, he is no longer in favor with Laban. But he doesn't want his wives to think, oh no, (laughs) we're in trouble now. Our father is a powerful and dangerous man, and if dad doesn't favor us, who will? And so, on the other hand, Jacob wants to point them to God and testify to them that Laban isn't the ultimate judge and authority in the universe. God is. 
Jacob says, God has been with me and for me these past 20 years. God has been for Jacob in spite of Laban's opposition. And even more amazing, God has been for Jacob in spite of Jacob's own sin. That's amazing. That's wonderful news. Can you imagine if God's faithfulness to you hinged on your faithfulness to him? That would be a frightening world to live in. But praise God that every child of God can echo the words of King David who, when faced with powerful enemies, was nevertheless able to say, this I know, that God is for me. And how can you know that for sure? How can you know that God is for you? Because God sent his son to die for you. And if if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, the Apostle Paul argues in Romans 8, if he has done that, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So we've seen a Godward calling, and we've listened in on a God-centered conference. And finally, we see in our text a God-inspired courage. A God-inspired courage. Now comes the moment of truth. How are Rachel and Leah going to respond to this request to to leave their home and leave their people and, 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 and just go off into the unknown? There's enormous risk here. And they know that they will incur the wrath of their father if they cross him. But the answer that these ladies give is remarkable. Moses writes them as, as, as speaking as with one voice. These sisters, check it out, these sisters for the very first time are seen as united. They finally agree on something. And in verses 14 and 15, they give a series of rhetorical questions where the answers are obvious. They say, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Answer, no. Are, are, are we not regarded to, by him as foreigners? Answer, yes. They do not feel they are a part of Laban's family anymore. They feel like outsiders. And then they say, for he has sold us. Laban has treated his daughters like chattel, like commodities. He used his daughters as tools to to squeeze as much wealth out of Jacob as possible. Laban has treated Jacob, Rachel, and Leah as slaves, and he has been uh, a merciless Pharaoh-like figure in their lives. And then the girls go on to say, and he has indeed devoured our money. You see, some of the wealth that Jacob had earned for Laban should have been set aside and held in trust in the event that the wives were abandoned or widowed. But Laban, he's kept all of that wealth to himself because evidently his intention is to keep Jacob and his daughters penniless and under his thumb, dependent on him and under his control forever. And these sisters are indignant. And they conclude in verse 16 that all of the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Notice that there's not just unity between Rachel and Leah over how their father has wronged them, but also a united recognition that God is bringing them justice, God is bringing them vindication, that he is plundering Laban on their behalf. Now, they could recognize and they could affirm all of those truths, but still not want to leave home. And I don't want you to downplay how huge this moment is with these ladies. Rachel and Leah are on the verge of taking an enormous risk here. They are being asked to cut ties with everything in their former life. 
Once they leave Padanaram, it's done. They are sealing their fate. Laban's wrath will be kindled, and at best, they will simply never be received back home, and at worst, well, if Laban is like Pharaoh, we all know what Pharaoh did when the Israelites fled from Egypt. And by the way, the significance of their choice is underscored by the fact that the Mesopotamian legal code stipulated that Jacob could not take his wives away without their consent. They had to agree to this. And so, in a sense, it is all on them whether they stay or whether they go. This is huge, huge. But in the end, the final thing these ladies base their decision on is their unity around obeying the word of God. That's the the last thing they say. They say, whatever God has said, do. And in that decision, Rachel and Leah follow in the footsteps of Rebecca before them, and, 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 and they, they do what Ruth would do later on in the Bible. They decide to conclusively break ties with the world and cast their lot with God, God's people, and God's promises that will be fully realized in the land of promise. This is a step of faith. And in their act of faith, these wives foreshadow Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. These ladies hold God and God's promises higher than they do any kind of obligations they have to their father. Family blood ties must finally give way to spiritual ties. God and God's people must become the superior kinship. So the decision is made, and Jacob and his family head out. Now, you may find some problematic things about their departure. (laughs) Verse 19 says that on the way out, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Thank you, Moses, for messing me up. I was trying to make these ladies look good. Well, put a pin in that, and we'll discuss that next week. I'll punt that one, and we'll deal with it next week. And then in verse 20, we're told that Jacob tricked Laban by not telling him that he intended to flee. Some of Jacob's old deceptive ways seem to be coming back here, but you know what? I don't totally blame him on this one. This may be more prudent wisdom than sinful trickery. In verse 31, we're going to discover that Jacob is afraid that Laban will attempt to take his daughters back by force. And that's not a totally unreasonable assumption. And we'll we'll talk more about that next week. John Calvin writes that Jacob had no hope of deliverance but in flight, for Laban had determined to hold him all his life as a captive. Therefore, Calvin writes, let us also learn by his example, when the Lord calls us, courageously to strive against every kind of obstacle. I, I agree with Calvin that what Jacob is doing here is a courageous thing. Folks, if you were being held captive by a deviant, wicked man like Laban who who has armed servants, you'd be scared too. By the way, don't forget this. Jacob actually has two concerns. He is running away from the threat of Laban. But even if he escapes and makes it to Canaan, he has no assurance that all will be well there. Because as he's running away from Laban, who is waiting for him in Canaan? Esau. 
remember what Jacob's mother promised. She said, go to Padan Aram for a few days, and when Esau cools down and things are better, I'll send for you. Folks, Jacob has never received that memo from mom. Jacob has every reason to believe that Esau is still out for blood. We're going to see in the next chapter that Jacob is terrified of his brother. Jacob is scared of Laban and Esau. He's running from something bad to something bad. So why do I say with all that in mind, why do I say that Jacob has courage? Because courage is not necessarily the absence of fear. When David wrote Psalm 56, he does not write, I am never afraid. And he does not write, if I am afraid. Instead, he writes, when I am afraid, (laughs) he expects this to happen sometimes, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Courage is not necessarily defined by the absence of fear, but what you do when the fear comes. And Jacob, in spite of all the risks, in spite of all the threats, in spite of the, 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 the danger of crossing Laban and the, the ominous threat of Esau, nevertheless, he decides to leave. Staying would be easier because he could pacify Laban and avoid Esau. Hey, Jacob's been doing okay in Padan Aram. Yeah, Laban's been mistreating him, but no matter what happens, Jacob keeps making money. Jacob keeps building his little empire. I'm sure there could have been all kinds of ways he could have rationalized staying around. But he decides to go. Ultimately, Jacob has heard the word of God, and ultimately he is trusting God. The God of Bethel, the God who said, I will be with you. The God who has been faithful to him time and again. And it is on the basis of that, that Jacob, when he hears the the input from his wives, he then says, all right then, Pack your things. We leave immediately. And his trust in God helps him to overcome his fear and move forward. Because he's finally learned, and it took him 20 years, that he's finally learned that what God has for him in his obedience is superior to what he can acquire through his disobedience. And so verse 21 says, he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Go ahead and put up that map. Uh, it's a little washed out, but hopefully you can, you can see some of that. Uh, Padan Aram is not even on this map. I wish I had a bigger map. Padan Aram would be like way up here somewhere. So he's got a long journey ahead of him, but he's going to cross the river, the, the Euphrates. And, and the final landmark... Uh, is, is uh, Gilead, this mountain range right here. And right on the other side is Canaan. Right on the other side is the promised land. But he has his face set here. Uh, he, he, he's fixed on that landmark. Gilead is locked into Jacob's GPS, so to speak. Uh, the text says he set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. He set his face towards the promised land. And that expression, set his face, speaks of a strong determined resolve. He has his mind made up. He will not be persuaded otherwise. He is fully committed. He's all in. And of course, as we've discussed before in previous sermons, promised land is not just about geography. 
but represents so much more in regards to God's plans and God's purposes. God's mission to bless the nations is bound up in the promised land. And the land points forward to the new heavens and the new earth, which Hebrews 11 calls a better country. And so Jacob, setting his face toward the promised land, speaks of Jacob's deep commitment to not just go home, but also that he is now all in in regards to everything that God has called him to. He is embracing his role in God's redemptive purposes. And those yearnings give him the resolve to overcome his concerns about Laban and overcome his fears about Esau and nevertheless move forward because it is time for him to be what he was born to be. And in this sense, Jacob's departure from Padan Aram is not just a prequel of the Exodus, but is also in shadowy form pointing forward to Jacob's greater son. Unlike Jacob, Jesus Christ feared no man. But he did have mounting threats and rising opposition on every side and, and opponents more cruel and more dangerous than Laban. The scribes, the Pharisees, the the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Jewish ruling council, and an entire world empire that would not let some backwater rabbi disturb Roman peace. And at, the, and at the center of the danger was Jerusalem, the very heart of the promised land. And in spite of that danger, and in spite of the dismay of his disciples who did not want Jesus to die, the Gospel of Luke tells us that nevertheless, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's that expression again. He set his face to Jerusalem. Prophet Isaiah predicted this when he spoke of the Lord's servant as one who sets his face like flint, like rock-hard stone, immovable, unshakable, rock-solid resolve to embrace the calling and the mission of God on his life. Jacob had to face Esau, but Jesus had to face all of his human enemies and the invisible satanic powers and principalities that stood against him. But still, Jesus set his face. He set his face to go to Jerusalem because he had his face set on the things of God and the glory of God. Because what God had for Jesus in his obedience was superior to anything else. And in Jerusalem, Jesus allowed himself to be killed He was hung on a cross, and through his sacrifice, through the sins of the world being placed on and punished in him, he was bringing blessing to the world. For whosoever in the world would believe in Jesus would find all of his sins forgiven, would find that he or she has been brought near to God in a loving relationship with him, with a home in heaven, in the ultimate land of promise forever. If you're here as an unbeliever, I would invite you today to break ties with this world and the things of this world and to go all in for Jesus who died and was raised for sinners. And believing in and receiving Jesus, you may lose many things. You may lose friends. You may lose even family. Certainly you'll lose acceptance by the world. But Jesus says in Mark 10, truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. That's the, that's the promise. That's the hope that's held out for you. If you're already a believer, <clears throat> you've, you've embraced that promise. The encouragement for you is to continue to press forward in the faith, to have your face set like flint towards the things of God, towards fulfilling your mission for God now in this life, and towards the glory that he has for you in the age to come. Because what God has for you in your obedience is superior than anything else you could gain by playing it safe. Hebrews 11 mentions the saints of old, including Jacob, who forsook sin and forsook the ways of this world and pressed forward to embrace all that God had for them. But the call for you is to not look so much to Jacob, but to the one that Jacob points to. That's why Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to have our face set like flint towards the things of God and the glory of God, that we would not be entangled by, distracted by the sinful pleasures of this world, the ideas of this world, that we would not be entangled by fear. As some of us may be tempted to think, well, if I, if I don't follow God in this area, things will be so much easier. Well, that's probably true in one way, but it won't be better. Maybe easier, won't be better. Let us be a people, let us be a church who have faces set like flint, moving forward towards the things of God, being all in for Him. Thank you that whatever is to be gained in our obedience is far superior than anything that we might acquire in our disobedience, and that the value of the kingdom of God is of far greater worth than anything that we might lose in our acquisition of the kingdom. Thank you that we have the better treasure. In Jesus' name, amen.